I'll invite you to turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 20 this morning. We've been teaching a series on spirit-led, being spirit-led Christians. We've talked about the three parts of man. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 identifies man as spirit, soul, and body. We've located the human spirit. We've spent some time talking about the development of the human spirit. Four steps. Meditate on the word. Be a doer of the word. Give the word first place. And then the fourth step is instantly obey the voice of your spirit. I want to continue teaching along the lines of step four this morning. Uh, being led by the spirit of God. And, uh, and to begin with this morning, I want to look at uh, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27. It says, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now, candle is used as, as an enlightening tool. In the day that this was written, they lit their homes. Uh, in, well, any, any form of darkness was lit by a candle or some kind of flame. And so literally it's saying that just as a candle will bring light into a darkened room, it's saying God will enlighten you, enlighten your life, enlighten your darkness, whatever you're confused about or, or unsure about, through your spirit. Now, since man is a spirit being, he has a soul and he lives in a body, the Bible is identifying that God uses your spirit to enlighten you or to lead you or to guide you, not your mind and not your flesh. Now, I want you to also look with me over to uh, uh, Psalm 18. David is writing, and we don't know what David knew. We don't know if David knew about the new birth. We don't know if, that, if he knew that that was God's original plan or if that's what was coming. Uh, certainly, he knew about a Messiah. He knew about a Savior, but to what degree that Savior uh, the work of that Savior would entail, we really don't know. He never, he never really told us anything about that. It would, uh, it would be, um, for me, too big a leap to assume that he knows what we know about the new birth and being a new creature in Christ Jesus and things like that. But notice that he said something in uh, Psalm 18, verse 28. He said, For thou wilt light my candle. Thou wilt light my candle. Now, there's some disagreement in theological circles about who wrote the book of Proverbs. Some people think that Solomon wrote it. Other people think that David wrote it. Other people think that David wrote some of them and Solomon wrote others. And, and to me, it really doesn't matter because it's inspired of the Holy Ghost. If Solomon wrote it, he got the information from David. If David wrote it, he's given us what he knows. So either way, it's the same thing to me. This information that's identified in Psalm 18 from David, the writer of, the, of Psalm 18, is the same information that David or Solomon is giving us in Proverbs chapter 20. If it's Solomon, it still came from his father. He said that these were the things that he were taught of his father. So it's probably Solomon that wrote the book of Proverbs, and he got this information from David. So David must have passed on information about the spirit of man to some degree. Now he says, thou will light my candle. He's talking about the spirit of man. He's saying God will enlighten. He goes further in the verse. He said, thou, O Lord, will enlighten my darkness. Now, what did David know? If he didn't know everything about the new birth that we know, and we can't expect that he would because we know of it through Paul's revelation, David sure wouldn't have had that. What did he know? He knew that the key to being led, guided, and instructed of God was spiritual revelation or spiritual knowledge. Well, I wish you could get Christians to know that today. David, who knew uh, one, maybe one one-thousandth of what we know of because of Paul's revelation, what Jesus has revealed to Paul through the church and, and given to us in the New Testament. David, who knew just a fraction of what we know based on Paul's revelation, knew that spiritual revelation or spiritual knowledge was the key. Now, with that in mind, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is, is always uh, intrigued to me. It's a, I think it's a real important scripture in that it, it tells us a lot more than what we might see at first glance, what might be on the surface. Paul is writing to the Corinthians for one specific reason, and that is to correct some things that are going on in the church. He wrote letters to all the churches that he established. He's doing the same thing to the church at Corinth. He wrote more letters to the church at Corinth than any other church that he started. We know of four. There are four that are mentioned. Two of them we have record of, two others that are, that are referred to in the, in the two letters that we do have. He wrote, we know of four letters, maybe more, because this was one of the most, if one of, if not the most troubled churches that existed. 
that certainly that Paul uh, uh, founded, began. And he's talking to them about what they have. He's talking to them about who they are in Christ. But then he makes some distinctions for the purpose of trying to bring correction to what's going on in the church, the things that are going on that are wrong. Notice he says in verse 14, well, let's back up to verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, he said, Now we have received, we means, the, I'm one of you, right? He's talking about Christians. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Folks, please notice there is a spirit of the world and there is a spirit of God, and they are not the same. This idea that all of mankind is, is, are, are children of God and that all men have a spark of divinity in them, that's hogwash, if the Bible's true. Now, if the Bible's not true, then you can come up with any idea you want to. But if the Bible's true, it, it can't be both ways. It can't be the way that the world says it is and the way the Bible says it is, because those are in opposition one to another. He says, we haven't received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. For what purpose? That we might know the things which are freely given to us. Notice that the spirit of God is given to you so that you would know something. Because spiritual knowledge is everything. Spiritual knowledge is the key to victory. Lack of spiritual knowledge is the guarantee of defeat. Spiritual knowledge is everything. And that's the work of the Holy Ghost. The Spirit which is of God is given to us. We've received Him that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Not think so, not hope so, not maybe so, but know the things that are freely given. There's nothing that frustrates me more than a weak Christian. Because it takes just as much effort to be a strong Christian as it t- does to, take a w- to be a weak Christian. Weak Christians just come up with this mealy mouth, well, we can't be sure. Well, the Bible says you can be sure. The church ought to be sure. That's what the Holy Ghost has given to us for, so that we'd know. Not think so, not hope so, not wonder, that we'd know. The things that are freely given to us of God. Which things, the things of God, which things also we speak? Not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Notice what Paul said he did. Paul said, I compare spiritual things with spiritual things, which means not all spiritual things are of God. If all spiritual things are of God, what are you comparing? Are you with me? Verse 14, but the natural man, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, the word discerned here is the word investigate, it's the word examine, it's the word scrutinize. He's saying that we, or he's saying that he is spiritually scrutinizing everything, and that's what he means, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. The natural man can't receive that. Now, certainly that's true of the unsaved. But I wonder how many Christians who have not developed in spiritual knowledge, who have not grown in the knowledge of God's Word, and therefore are in the same boat as these guys. He goes on in chapter 3 and calls them carnal Christians, body-ruled Christians. They've got gifts of the Spirit in operation. They've got supernatural things taking place. But he says, you're still body-ruled. I wonder what the jump between natural Christian and, or natural man and carnal man is. Is it an instant get saved and all of a sudden now you receive the things of the Spirit of God? Well, I know a lot of Christians that don't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They could, but they don't. I know a lot of Christians to whom spiritual things are just as foolish as they are to the unsaved. So what are we talking about? Are we talking about just asking Jesus into your heart? Or are we talking about a progression through knowledge, through the development of the knowledge of God's Word? And the development of, spirit, of your human spirit. Are we talking about something where you come from natural, carnal to spiritual? Or is natural and carnal the same thing? Are these three different steps or are they two steps? Now folks, you could argue either way. I could, I could, I could convince you of both ways. I could take the scripture and convince you both ways. Certainly... A carnal Christian is someone who is saved but still living naturally. We can all agree on that, can't we? I mean, that would be what body rule would mean, would have to mean. 
So we could say that just as the unsaved don't receive the things of the Spirit of God, body-ruled Christians or carnal Christians don't receive the things of the Spirit of God either. They can. They should. Just simply through growing in the knowledge of God's Word, they would. But that's a choice. And that's the situation they've got going on here. So he says, The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. He's saying very simply that unless... Spiritual examination and scrutiny takes place. You cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. That means the things of God are not just going to fall on you. That means the leading of the Holy Ghost is not just going to pop up. You're going to have to scrutinize it. You're going to have to examine it. That's why Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're the sons of God. Folks, there's nothing more important for you to know than you're a child of God. And the Bible says the Holy Ghost bears witness with you that you are a child of God. That's why the inward witness is sometimes so difficult for us to identify. And it will continue to be difficult for us to identify until we grow in the knowledge of God's Word. Specifically, learn how to scrutinize. So he goes further, verse 15. He says, but he that is spiritual judges all things. This word judges is the same word discerned in verse 14. He that is spiritual scrutinizes all things. He that is spiritual scrutinizes all things. Well, how are you going to be able to scrutinize if you don't have the word? The Bible says that we're supposed to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. If you don't know what the Bible says, how can you do that? If you don't have knowledge of God's word, how in the world can you scrutinize things? How how in the world can you develop to be a spiritual man or woman? You can't. It comes to the knowledge of God's word. He that is spiritual judges or scrutinizes all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Notice you don't judge people. You don't scrutinize people. You scrutinize things. Big difference. Now, there's a real popular thing in in the church world nowadays for... Uh, you know, when some people, when you try to identify that the Bible warns you getting certain uh, certain things, certain manners or behaviors or lifestyle, or whatever, Christians will jump up, they'll scream, "You're judging me." Well, you don't have to judge the person, but you can sure judge what the action is. A spiritual man judges all things, the actions, but not people. They realize God still died for these people, no matter how foolishly they may be acting. No matter how destructively their own behavior may make, uh, how much destruction their own behavior may cause them or other people. So that's the difference. He that is spiritual judges all things, not all people, all things. That's where a spiritual person, that's the, one of the differences between a spiritual person and a carnal person. A carnal person will judge according to the flesh. A spiritual person will judge according to the word. He that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Where do you get the mind of Christ? Does that happen when you get saved? Well, if it does, there is no renewing of the mind. If we have the mind of Christ as soon as we get saved, then why did Paul write to the church and say, "Renew your, be not transformed or be not conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? He's telling Christians that their mind, they haven't yet been transformed because their minds haven't been renewed. So the mind of Christ must come through the renewing of the mind, not through salvation. Are you out there? Are you with me? Now that brings us to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus says some very interesting things about being led by the Spirit of God. When Jesus talks about hearing his voice, he's talking about hearing the voice of the Spirit. So let's look together at John chapter 10. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning is knowing the voice of the Spirit. John chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 1, but we'll just pick out a couple of verses. Verses 4 and 5 are really ones I want to see. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He's contracting, contrasting himself and the devil. The devil came into this world as a renegade and an outlaw. Jesus came into this world as a human being. 
He that enters in the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Verse 2, to him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now, Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd here. He's talking about himself. He's using a natural example to talk about himself. So notice again verse 4. He said about hearing his voice. Or hearing the voice of the shepherd, he said, he goes forth before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Notice he didn't say, I send my sheep out ahead of me. I see a lot of people that make mistakes because they get out ahead of God. And a lot of times they make the mistake and get out ahead of God because they hear something from the Lord or have a witness in the, from the Lord on something he wants them to do. Okay, here we go. Well, just because you've heard from the Lord what to do doesn't mean now is the time to do it. You see this happening with young people in ministry a lot of times. They'll have a witness that God wants me to go into ministry. So what do they do? They jump out there and try to start in ministry. They don't have the character developed to withstand the trouble that they're going to run into. So they fail. Well, what if the Lord has told me that he's got a ministry for me? Prepare. Why do you think he told you? He told you so you can prepare. I learned some of the greatest lessons of my life watching Brother Hagin do nothing. And it would frustrate us, us young people. Man, we wanted to go win the world. Come on, Brother Hagin, you're not getting any younger. We've got to get this done. <laughs> Brother Hagin would sit on things the Lord told him for years, decades sometimes. Then he'd say, okay, now it's time. I've got a witness in my heart. Now's the time to do it. I've known what to do all along. Now's the time. Folks, God will show you things so you can prepare for them. Not so you can run out, run out and fall on your face. Try to get it done without the equipment. So he said, my sheep, the sheep follow me for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow for they, but will flee from him for they know not the voice of strangers. For they know not the voice of strangers. Notice in verse 3 it says the sheep hear his voice. And then twice in verse 4 and in verse 5 he says the sheep know his voice. Now the word hear in verse 3 is, is not just to listen to. It means to understand. It means to discern. Folks, there is a discerning the voice of the Lord. There is a discerning the voice of the Lord. Paul said this. He said there are many voices in the air and none are without signification. Now that's, I, I, let me turn it around and take out the knots so we understand what he's saying. He's saying there are many voices in the air and they're all significant. What, what do you mean? The devil's voice is as significant as God's voice? How are they all significant? How's that possible? No, he's, he's not saying they're all equal. He's saying they're all similar. Well, how are you going to know the difference between the voice of the devil and the voice of God? By scrutiny, spiritual scrutiny. See, a lot of times people hear, see this word here in John chapter 10, and they'll say, okay, well, I'm listening for the voice of God. I'm waiting to hear him. Well, he's not saying that you'll recognize his voice by sound. When my kids were little, I didn't like to holler after my kids. It made me feel like I was a bad parent or that other people would think I was a bad parent. I had to holler to get them back and stuff like that. So I came up with a signal for them. I'd go, psst, psst, psst. Now, my kids, listen, my kids trained to learn that because I told them, if I ever do that and you don't hear me, you're in trouble. It's your fault. You may think I'm a bad parent still, but nevertheless, it worked. We could be in a crowd of people with a lot of stuff going on, and I'd just go, my kids would perk up their ears because they knew that sound. When I was a, a, a boy in the neighborhood playing with a friend of mine, his dad could whistle. He had put his... Two little fingers in the ends of his mouth, the corners of his mouth, and whistle. And I mean it could break glass. We could be anywhere, but we'd hear that whistle and we'd know that was his dad. Well, see, a lot of times people have that kind of idea about hearing and knowing the voice of God. They think they're going to become so familiar with a sound that they're going to know that's it. That's not what he's talking about, folks. That's not what he's talking about. Paul is saying just the opposite. He's saying there's a lot of voices and they all sound the same. 
Well, how are we going to know then? We're going to have to discern. We're going to have to spiritually scrutinize, compare spiritual things with spiritual things, the right spiritual things against the wrong spiritual things so that we know what's, what God's trying to get across to us. That's why the development of the Word is such a key in, ingredient in, a, in spiritual development. You can't know the voice of God if you don't know the Word. In, uh, in World War II... Nazi Germany and the Axis powers were, were kicking butt. The German U-boats were controlling the shipping lanes across the Atlantic. And America really hadn't gotten into the war much at that point. And England was just hanging on by a thread. And they intercepted some of the transmissions, the German transmissions, to their, uh, to their forces and the U-boat captains and stuff like that. But the Germans used a special code. It was called Enigma. It was a machine. And they would type it out on this Enigma machine. And it would create something that nobody, even though the, the transmissions were, were intercepted, they couldn't be deciphered unless you had an Enigma machine. And so it became one of the great missions of World War II for the, uh, the Allied powers to get their hands on one of these Enigma machines. And they did, and they did it in such a way that the Germans didn't know that they had one, and so they were reading their mail for the rest of the war. Turn the tide of the war, according to Churchill. Well, spiritual things are kind of like that too. The Enigma machine was the code breaker. Folks, the Word of God is the code breaker. And without the Word of God, there are going to be a lot of spiritual things that you're not going to know whether it's God or whether it's the devil. Now, let's talk about how the devil works a little bit. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, first time we see the devil showing up, I want you to see how the devil operates. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more subtle. The word serpent is really the word deceiver. It comes from the root word enchanter. doesn't mean snake. Uh, the only the only reference or the only uh, comparison for why the translators would use the word snake is it is a hissing sound. So it was the sound, the voice of of the devil that's referred to here, not his appearance. So it says, now the serpent or the deceiver was more subtle than any beast. Subtle means smarter. It means a better debater. He was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of of every tree of the garden? Now stop and, and realize what the devil does first and foremost. First time we see him showing up, notice how he shows up. He says something to this effect. Is it really so that God told you not to eat of every tree of the garden? Now what's the implication? The implication is very simple. Here's this wonderful place. All this neat stuff, everything that's around you, and God told you you can't enjoy it all. The devil focused on some restriction for what they couldn't do. Now, you tell me, how many times are young Christians particularly tempted with that same idea? What do you mean we can't? drink and party and do everything else all the other young people are doing. That's exactly the way the devil operated. He started focusing on what she couldn't do. Why didn't he say, wow, you're the controller of this whole place. Look at all the blessing God has given you. Man. Then the woman answers, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. She was smart enough to know one thing, and that is, God said no for her benefit. Folks, that's why God gives us warnings about what not to do. It's for our good. It's not to rob us of some good time in the world. It's for our own benefit. She was smart enough to know that. I wish she'd stuck with that. You know, folks, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that um, 
that there are things that we know now that we won't know in heaven. Has to be that way. If it were not so, how in the world could we go through eternity without every time we see an Adam and Eve saying, what in the world were you thinking? (laughs) That may sound funny, but I'm really serious. I'm absolutely convinced there are a lot of things he wipes away from our memory. How would you enjoy heaven if you know somebody that's in hell? Well, anyway, back to the story. She said, God said we shouldn't eat of it because if we eat of it, we'll die. And then the devil did the second thing. First thing he did was challenge her on the restrictions that her life with God imposed upon her. The second thing he did is he flat out said God lied. He said God's word isn't reliable. He said, you shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. Now, what's he doing now? Here's the subtlety of the devil. And he's, he hadn't changed a bit. He still operates the same way. He's throwing in this idea that God did something and gave them false information to keep them from having something that would really be enjoyable for them. He planted the idea, the wrong notion about God's character and his nature. That God's trying to keep you from something, but if you go ahead and do it, it'll be really good for you. First thing he said is, you shall not surely die. That's a lie. He tried to replace the truth with a lie. God said, you eat of it, you'll die. Satan said, nah, you won't die. Other people might die, but not you. Folks, tell me anybody that gets on drugs that intends to be an addict. Wouldn't it be safe for us to say that every person that gets addicted got into drugs thinking they can handle it? One of the girls on that trailer that we looked, that we saw earlier, she said, I won't become like my parents. Well, she did. No, you can handle it. Then he said in verse 5, he said, for God does know. Now, folks, Is the devil the best source for finding out what God knows? (laughs) I'll go a step further. Is man the best source for finding out what God knows? Well, then why are people judging God based on what the devil says and what man says? Religion is just man. Religious doctrine is just man. If the Bible's not saying it, I don't care what preacher does say it. Why are we judging God based on what somebody says he's like? You do see my point here, don't you? I'm not going to beat beat a dead horse here, but I do want you to see the point. When a preacher says God won't heal everybody, if the Bible says differently, what are we listening to him for? Okay, for God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. That part's true. He's just telling them the different thing about their eyes opening. He's telling them their eyes opening will be a blessing, not a curse. So God knows that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So the devil put it out like this. He said, knowing what God says you shouldn't know will be to your benefit. So basically, the summarization of this is God really doesn't want what's best for you. So I've got a question, and I don't understand why in the world Eve didn't ask, ask him this. If this is a good tree for us to have, and God doesn't want us to have it, why did he create it? If God really wanted to keep us away from this tree, why did he make the tree and put it in the middle of the garden? If it's like you say. Now, folks, there's a reason, there's a legitimate answer for this. God wanted them to serve him by choice, not because they were forced to. God's not looking for robots. He's looking for people that serve him willingly, with a willing heart. And that's why he put the tree in the middle of the garden, knowing they were going to eat of it, knowing it would be bad for them. He gives them a choice. But why didn't she question the devil about that? In other words, she's not scrutinizing based on the truths that she already knew. 
She's not comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. She's not judging or scrutinizing all things. And look at where it brought her. Now, folks, this is the way the devil does. One, one way that the devil operates is he'll just flat out tell you the Bible won't work or the Bible's not true or you can't believe that fairy tale stuff. You hear that a lot from the unsaved. The unsaved say, you know, I remember a number of years ago, Ted Turner, that mental giant, said uh, Christianity was a crutch for the weak. Well, he's a special kind of stupid, isn't he? Crutch for the weak. Really? Okay. That's the attitude of the world. The Bible's a fairy tale. It's just, it's just a book. I don't know why it's so important to you Christians. It's just a book written by men. It's not the Word of God. It's not reliable. That's what the devil told her. It doesn't turn out the way that the Bible says. God's Word is not the, the final answer on anything. That's why it's so important to know what the Word is and what the Word says. Now, folks, you're going to have to decide for yourself whether the Bible's true. Nobody can decide that for you. You're going to have to figure that out once and for all. And I would suggest you make that decision early. As in, don't delay. But now there's another way that the devil operates. And that is, he tries to... Brother Hagin used to say it like this. He used to say, if the objective of driving is to stay on the road... You need to realize there's a ditch on either side. The key to successful driving is to stay between the ditches. Well, one ditch that the devil will try to get you in is to deny the truth of the word. Forget the word because it's not true, it's not reliable, doesn't work, forget it. Just live your life, do whatever you're going to do anyway, do what everybody else does. That's easy for the God of this world to say because he's got the people that are living according to his direction trapped. He wants everybody trapped. But there's another side to it, too. And I want you to turn with me over to Matthew chapter 4 for this one. When we look at the temptation of Jesus, we see another aspect or another way that the devil operates. Matthew chapter 4 tells us about Jesus being led of the Spirit into the wilderness. Well, what did he go in the wilderness for? Well, the Bible says that he fasted for 40 days. He's committing himself to the plan and the purpose of God. He's committing himself to the, to the ministry that God has for him. That's the reason he's in the wilderness. He's not in the wilderness to meet the devil. Why do you have to go to the wilderness to find the devil? He's in the wilderness to commit himself to the ministry that God's given to him. He's separating himself, getting alone with God to prepare for the ministry. He's just been baptized by John in the Jordan River. First thing that happens is the Holy Ghost takes him out of the wilderness where he can get alone with God. Not alone with the devil. Alone with God. But after the 40 days, the Bible says he's fasted, he's hungry. That's when the devil shows up. Folks, the devil will always show up after you try to separate yourself to God. Sorry, it's just the way it works. The Bible tried to warn us. Be prepared for that. Anytime you commit yourself in a different way, to God or in a greater way to God, the devil will always be there to try to talk you out of it. So here's what the devil does. Verse, four, verse 2 of chapter 4, it says, When he had fasted 40 days, Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Afterwards, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. What is the temptation? Put the desire of your flesh above your commitment to God. Now, folks, if you fast forward to the end of this temptation, it says the angels came and ministered to him. I'm guessing that's better than turning stones into bread. Hold fast to your commitment, and the blessing will be greater than what you're being tempted to to trade it for. But here's the temptation. Put the desire of your flesh, natural desire. I mean, after all, God made your flesh need to eat. Right? Right? We're not talking ungodly desire. We're not talking about some ungodly purpose here. God made your body to need food. So his desire to eat is a God-given, God-created desire, right? Nothing wrong with what he wants, and that is to eat. 
But the problem comes in when you put the desires of your flesh above your commitment to God. And that's the first thing the devil tempted him with. Do what you want to do instead of what you're committed to do. Now, folks, I would submit to you that when we asked Jesus to be the Lord of our lives, we gave ourselves to him. We committed to live our lives for him, not just to use his salvation or redemption as an escape from the fires of hell. There was a mutual exchange. He gave us his life, so we give him ours. So really, you think of it, everything that the devil tries to tempt you in your flesh to do is this first temptation. To put the desires of your flesh above your commitment to God. And there's all kinds of, all kinds of excuses, there's all kinds of reasonings, there's all kinds of arguments that people will give for it. Well, we're free in Christ. Yeah, but what does that mean? Free to follow your flesh? Paul talked about this. He said, don't use your liberty in Christ as an occasion to serve the flesh. Why? Because that's where the devil wants to tempt you. There are some things that we shouldn't do, not because they're wrong to do, just because we've committed ourselves to God. Wouldn't have been wrong for Jesus to turn these stones into bread. But it would have been wrong for him to put that above his commitment to God. So Jesus answered and said, as it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil takes him up, verse 5, into the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down for it is written. Please notice the devil quotes scripture too. Which means you're going to have to, if you're going to be a spiritual person, if you're going to develop to know the voice of God, you're going to have to judge Scripture against Scripture. You're going to have to compare spiritual things with spiritual things. Well, Scripture always is spiritual, isn't it? So when Jesus answers this, he's comparing the Scripture with the Scripture to make sure he's got the proper meaning. Right? Now, the devil's intent is to keep Jesus in the dark about what other scriptures will contradict the scriptures he's quoting. Not that the scripture he's quoting is wrong, but the application of it is wrong. I, I got to be careful here because I don't know how... how um, how mature I should consider my audience to be. Paul said this. He said, all things are lawful to me. But they're not all helpful or expedient. King James says expedient. That means helpful or beneficial. So what does he say? He says, I'll live my life based on what helps other people, not based on what's lawful or legal for me to do. Yeah, but some people are going to live by what they're legally able to do. Legally means scripturally enabled to do. Paul says, I'm going to go a step beyond that. See, for me, it's not a matter of can I drink or can I smoke or can I curse or can I run around with other women? For me, it's it's a question of what impact would it have on other people? But people always want to get into the argument, not about what's best, but about what they can do. Well, prove to me from the Bible that that drinking's wrong. Can't. Not even going to try. It's really not the point. The question is, who's it going to help and who's it going to hurt? Are we back to the same thing with the, the devil's temptation of Eve saying... Oh, this, break this restriction or break this principle and it'll be good for you? Or are we going to go back to the New Testament law of love, which says love works no ill to his neighbor. If I do something and you see me doing something that you think is wrong, but I know from the scripture is, is okay, it could hurt your conscience. Now, I've committed sin. That's why I'm real careful about telling parents the way they ought to raise their kids. Because their kids may be sitting over here and hear something different than what their parents are telling them.
Let's say, for example, a parent doesn't want their kids to go see movies. But I say, oh, movies are okay. Well, now I've interjected myself into being the instructor of that child. Isn't that the parent's responsibility? Is it really up to me to decide for their child what's okay and what's not? Do you see the point I'm trying to make? It's amazing to me how people set themselves up to be the the authority on so many spiritual things when they're babies themselves. So the devil said, I'm not going to, by the way, I know it's late, but you guys realize I got it late, don't you? Okay, just want to make sure we're okay here. Verse 5, then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, if thou be the son of God, cast yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Well, didn't Jesus come to the earth to show that he's the son of God? He came to take away the sin of the world. Only the Son of God can do that. The devil's giving him a perfect way to do that. But what is the devil's temptation here? The temptation is to go beyond the word. The Genesis account of the devil tempting Eve was to deny the word. But the ditch on the other side of the road is to go beyond the word. He's saying, well, the Bible talks about the angels bearing you up in in their hands or their wings lest you dash your foot upon a stone. So why don't you make a name for yourself and jump off? Well, that'd draw a crowd, wouldn't it? Him floating down to the ground. Now, folks, I would submit to you that floating to the ground is not an impossible thing for Jesus. He was caught up into heaven, came back in the same way. But the temptation is to go beyond the word. To go beyond the word. And Jesus answered and said, it is written also. I love that. It is written again. In other words, he's comparing the word with the word. It is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Folks, please understand that Jesus is saying that to go beyond the word is to tempt God. To go beyond the word is to tempt God. Now, last week uh, I made mention, and and I should preface this with uh, some background. There's nothing new. Solomon figured this out after doing everything he could that was wrong. He came back and said, you know, there's really nothing new under the sun. Everything I thought would be so great, meh, nothing to it. He experienced the devil's notion of try everything. Well, he did and said, that was stupid. Now, you can learn from his experience or try it out yourself. It's up to you. I would suggest you use his example to learn from. We all should. But there's nothing new in the body of Christ. I made mention last week of a, of a certain thing that's going on now, this thing called treasure hunting, where people are, are um, looking for the Holy Ghost in supernatural things and, and stuff like that that doesn't line up with the Word. And, uh, and that's not new. On the, the most recent uh, things that have happened along those lines is at the end of the, the charismatic revival in the 60s, which was a, um, uh, I kind of hate to use this term, but it was an outpouring. It was a special emphasis, really, in uh, being filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Full Gospel Businessmen's International was used in a great way during that time. Uh, Melody Land, Dr. Wilkerson, uh, his church up in uh, Anaheim was a, a result to a great degree of that charismatic revival whatever term you want to give it. But on the heels of that, in the early 70s, there was this thing started uh, called uh, the Latter Rain Movement that began. It was an offshoot of the Charismatic Revival. And what they did is they went beyond what the Word says about the moving of the Holy Ghost, and they started praying for everybody to have every gift of the Spirit. Come on down in their services. Say, come on down. If you want the gift of prophecy, come down. We'll pray for you and give it to you. Well, Does man give that out? I thought the Bible says that the Holy Ghost divides those as he wills. Beth and I, and and it wasn't anything new. It it continued on and and everything that was 
marginal was considered a move of the spirit it was considered the action of the holy ghost and this kind of stuff you know somebody get up and and i remember one story somebody said my light bulb had been burned out for a couple of days and without thinking i turned the light on in the closet and it came on so that was the, that was the work of god well it might have been that the light bulb came unscrewed a little bit and you know made connection later on i mean really god has to work in light bulbs but anyway, this continued through the 70s. It continued through the 80s. There's still some Latter Day Movement churches out there now. They're few and far between, but there's still some scattered out there now. Uh, it went on to the uh, the Sons of God group. Beth and I heard about it. Uh, I guess this was in the uh, either the late 80s, early 90s. I'm not sure. But there was a group out here, and the special speaker, you know, had the School of the Prophets, all this kind of stuff. So we went to the service, heard a lot about him, and, and uh, of course the Christian magazines, they were all over this because anything that they deemed to be anything new or spiritual or supernatural or whatever, they just jump in the middle of. Um, I, I'm pretty well convinced that, it, that it not in any area of media, um, secular or Christian, is there any comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But nevertheless, we went to one of these services, and uh, the, at the, toward the end of the service, uh, the minister said, okay, now I want everybody to, to turn around, turn around to the, to the row behind you. It was, you know, auditorium with pews instead of seats. So turn around to the, to the row behind you. You know, every other row, turn around, that kind of thing. So you, everybody's got somebody facing them. Now I want you to pray and give them a word from God. So Beth and I are standing here, and here's this sweet little lady, bless her heart. She wouldn't know the Holy Ghost. He walked in the room wearing a red hat. But she's trying. She's sincere. She's trying. And she, she takes my hands and she prays and she says, she gets this scrunched up look on her face and she says, the Lord shows me that you're too money-minded. Well, at that time, I was taking about half the salary that the church was allowing me to take putting everything we had into the church and that kind of stuff. Folks, you're never going to find anybody that's less money interested than I am. You just can't do it. Brother Hagin used to be the, the least money-minded person on the earth, but he's gone to heaven now, so it's me. <laughs> I, I just don't care. I realize money's a necessity. I realize it's a tool, but I don't care. Money might forget that. I could tell you stories that would prove my point, but it's not, not important. But bless her heart, she just she was trying with everything that she had to, to, to give something from God. Well, folks, you can't conjure that kind of stuff up. Now, what's going on now with the treasure hunting stuff? And I know I spoke to this a little bit last week to, to the dismay of some. But nevertheless, um, I, I was noticing on the website that uh, the person that's teaching all this stuff in the, in the group that's, uh, that's doing it, the, the guy that's teaching it, he said this. He was explaining to other people, here's how you do it. Here's how you get God to reveal things to you and, and so forth. And this was, this was his testimony now. I'm not making this up. This was right off of his website. He said, I focus on the Holy Spirit until I feel him in my body. And then he starts speaking to me. But folks, that's mysticism. That's not the Holy Ghost. You can't find anything in the Bible that says you'll feel God in your body. In, the, in fact, the Bible says God leads you by your spirit, not by your body. It says it's the inward witness, not the outward feeling. And, and this is prevalent. You see this a lot of times in these worship conferences and, and stuff like that. Bless people's hearts. They've got the idea that unless we're singing the right song or singing with their favorite worship leader, the Spirit of God's not present. Because we went to this worship conference and, oh, there were thousands of people worshiping the Lord. And, of course, it was the most famous group that's out there nowadays. And, and, and oh, the, the atmosphere was just charged with the presence of God. Folks, the presence of God is here whether you feel it, the atmosphere charged or not. And if you're relying on the feeling of the atmosphere being charged, you're not really worshiping God in spirit. You're judging God by your feelings or the feelings of the atmosphere. I used to think this was a disadvantage because I am so unmusically inclined. But now I think it's an advantage because I don't need to be in an in a auditorium with thousands of people worshiping God to feel the Holy Ghost I can get by myself in my office and sing and the Holy Ghost is there now don't get me wrong I like the feelings too those are great but I'm not going to live off of them 
But some people, unless they have that feeling, then they judge the Holy Ghost not to be there. Well, based on what? Is that comparing spiritual things with spiritual things? Or is that comparing the way I feel with the way I think it ought to be? See what I'm saying? The devil will try to push you too far just as much as he'll try to make you deny the word. Equally the same. I remember something I heard John Osteen say before he went home to be with the Lord. Uh, at, uh, at the time, uh, this would have been in the, oh, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s, I guess. He was, um, uh, we went to a minister's conference. He had a pastor's conference. The last pastor's conference he had before he went home. And um, uh, we just, Beth and I just decided to go and, oh, I'm so glad I did. There were so many things that I got that I still remember now, still hold fast to. And, and I remember him saying this. He was talking about uh, the money that their church gave to missions. I think he said the previous year they'd given $5 million to missions. And um, uh, to such a degree that a lot of churches would send them mission money for him to, to give out to missionaries that he knew because John was well-connected with uh, missions efforts all over the world. And so anyway, he said, uh, he said, yeah, he said last year, he said we gave out $5 million to missions. He said if you want to send missions money to us, if you don't know where it's all to go, send it to us. We've got missionaries on every continent. We can help people. But then he stopped and he said, but I've got to tell you, folks, he said, I've ruined so many missionaries by giving them too much money. Well, I thought we were supposed to give to missionaries. I thought giving is a good thing. I thought we were supposed to be cheerful givers and give abundantly. Aren't we? Doesn't the Bible say that? Yeah, it does. But if you compare spiritual things with spiritual things, then you realize sometimes even doing something that's good might not be doing something led of the Spirit. And what he was saying is I would have been better off rather than giving the money, all the money that I did to that one missionary overwhelmed him. Listen, you send $100 to some places where it costs a dollar today, that's, half, that's six months worth of, of, of pay. That's huge amounts for some people. Some people don't know how to handle that. We might think, well, it's just an extra $100. Might be all the money in the world for them. Might be a year's wages for where they are. And so what Brother Osteen was saying is we were right in giving, but we were wrong in the way that we gave it. We could have been led by the Spirit that would have been helped, would have been a help to them rather than a hindrance. You can sometimes do the right thing, but not be led of the Spirit to do it, and it causes harm. Now, God looks on the heart. If you had a witness not to do that, then you're supposed to follow that witness. But if it was just an honest mistake or something, then I'm not saying God holds everybody responsible for stuff like that. I'll tell you another place that people miss it trying to push people too far. And that is they try to tell people what a gift of God they've got. Oh, how anointed you are. God's going to use you in a great way. Brother Hagin used to talk to us about this stuff all the time. Man, he used to hit us with this stuff. One of us would do something good, we'd come in thinking we did pretty good, and he'd say, who do you think you are? (laughs) Turn with me over to uh, Acts chapter 15. Let me show you something. I have to admit, I've seen this story in different ways throughout my Christian life. But I'm glad to say that I've grown up a little bit and see it the way that it ought to be. Acts chapter 13 tells us about how God separated Paul and Barnabas for a ministry that he had for them. That ministry was to change the world. They went on their first ministry journey, missionary journey, and had phenomenal results. They wound up going in Acts chapter 15, the early part of Acts chapter 15, they wound up going to Jerusalem, and one of the, the landmark events in Christianity took place, the council at Jerusalem, where it was finally decided and determined once and for all what rules the Jews would have to follow regarding Christianity, which was nothing other than don't eat meat strangled or mixed with blood. And to remember the poor in their giving. But then Paul comes up with the idea. I think it was Paul that came up with the idea. Yeah, verse 36. After some days, Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. Simple enough. Let's take a second missionary journey. Now, folks, this second missionary journey changed the geography of the world. 
It caused Christianity to come west instead of go east. It's the reason that America is a Christian nation or was founded upon Christian principles. Hard to say we aren't anymore. But it was founded upon Christian principles instead of China or Japan. Because Paul came to a crossroads and the Holy Ghost said go this way instead of go this way. If he'd gone this way, the gospel would have been preached there. It would have, the Christianity would have spread east. It changed everything about the world. It still affects us now 2,000 years later. So Paul says, let's go. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to work. In other words, John Mark went on the first missionary journey. John Mark was Barnabas' nephew. They, he went on the first missionary journey. It got too tough for him. He turned around and went back home. So Paul says, no, he said, he, no, no, he's not coming with us again. And the contention was so great between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and departed being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. And he went through Syria and to Cilicia confirming the churches. Folks. I would submit to you that you could just as easily say, so Barnabas, in the end of verse 39, so Barnabas took Mark and sailed out of the will of God. Tell me this. If in Acts chapter 13, the Holy Ghost said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work wherein to I've called them, show me something that says they're not called to be together now. What in the world was Barnabas thinking? He knows. He knows the Holy Ghost. He knows the will and the plan and the purpose of God. He knows what's happened. He knows who Paul is. He knows the revelation Paul's received. He knows how they fit together. Barnabas was the primary speaker. Barnabas is the encourager. Let me tell you something about encouragers. They're wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. But they wind up encouraging people whether they're right or they're wrong. And sometimes that encouragement can be used for somebody to continue doing the wrong thing. Barnabas, in this situation, says, John Mark is too important for me as a family member to let go. God's got a plan, of, God's got a call and a plan for his life. I see people do this. And it's easy to do with family members. Oh, God's going to use you in a great way, son. Really? Yeah. Brother Hagin would never say anything like that to anybody. Never say anything like that to anybody. You know why? Because the road of ministry is littered with people that had great gifts from God. And I think, and I'm not the first one to say this, F.F. Bosworth said this. He said, I think sometimes it's a disadvantage for somebody to have a great gift. Because people that don't perceive themselves to have as great a gift work harder to develop themselves. And somebody that has a great gift. I've seen ministers, young people ruined because people, a lot of times it's family members, tell them how great God's going to use them. How great they're going to be in the things of God. Wait a minute. Let's compare spiritual things with spiritual things. John chapter 15 verse 26, Jesus said when the Holy Ghost has come, he will testify of me. He didn't say he'll make you a big shot. This goes back to that treasure hunting thing. One of the testimonies that I saw on their website is one of the, the guy, the, the lead guy, one of the big teachers on this thing. He said that he walked into a place of business and asked the Lord to show him how many people were in the store. And God showed him. Well, what's the testimony on that? What he knows? Show me how that testifies of Jesus. It doesn't. And if you compare spiritual things with spiritual, you have to realize if he knew something supernaturally, but it can't be the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost only testifies of Jesus, where did the information come from? Familiar spirits. Folks, the devil's got a counterfeit for every spiritual thing that God has enacted. Brother Hagin talked about this. He said that when, he was, uh, uh, when the Lord separated him to the ministry of the prophet... He said the Lord showed him something. He appeared to him in a vision. And the Lord said, I'm going to permit you to hear 
or he told him, first of all, he said, there is a counterfeit to the spirit of prophecy. He said, I'm going to let you hear what that is so you'll know to recognize it. And so he did. He said, it's like, Brother Hagin said, it's like the Lord opened a little curtain that he didn't even see was there, but he kind of waved his hand like that. It was like a curtain open, and he heard these words. And he sounded just like the Holy Ghost. Just like the things he heard. The Lord will do this, and the Lord will do that, and great shall be the results here, and so on and so forth. But then right at the end, he said, right at the end, he said, it turned. And he says, and he'll make you great in the eyes of people. And great shall be your ministry. Brother Hagin, when he started hearing those things, Brother Hagin stopped and said, or, or interrupted and said, I got it, I got it, I hear it, I see the difference. That started talking about me instead of you. And Jesus said, yep, that's it. You've got a lot of things going on in the body of Christ that people think is the Holy Ghost. And it's either an overactive imagination or if it's, if it's right, it's familiar spirits. Meaning if it's supernatural information. There's only two places supernatural information can come from, folks. One's God, the other's the devil. How are you going to know the difference? The word's the code breaker. Things sound similar. Things sound just the same. But the word is the only code breaker there is. That's why the word of God is such a key point, such a key factor in spiritual development. Such a key factor in spiritual development. What happened here with Barnabas? Well, Barnabas finished out of ministry, and he made John Mark into something. He, was, he did a good job with him on that. But he sacrificed what God put together to get it. wonder if it was worth it. We could also say that the end of verse 39 is, So Barnabas took John Mark and sailed away, never to be heard from again. Because the Bible doesn't tell us much more about him. mentions him one time in one of Paul's letters, but outside of that, nothing. Folks, I would submit to you that he traded the ministry and God's best plan for his life for a family member. I wonder if it was worth it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure he did good things. Didn't cost him his salvation. I'm sure he got people saved. I'm sure he helped people. He still knew the truth, still knew the word. But I wonder if it was worth it. Folks, there's a real move of the spirit but there's counterfeit how are we going to know now i'm not talking to you about this from a ministry standpoint i'm not trying to talk to you about this so you can judge people or ministries or anything else that's who cares about that what i want you to know is how to discern the voice of the holy spirit when he's leading you how can we know that the inward witness is right what does it line up with the word first and foremost does it line up with the word secondly does it point to god or does it point to me These things are important issues, critical issues for the last days. I don't know if you know this or not, but Paul talked about the last days being days of lying wonders. Well, if something's a wonder, it would indicate that it's supernatural in power, isn't it? But lying means the opposite of truthful. That means the devil's going to do his supernatural things too. We need to know the word so we can tell the difference. We need to be spiritual men and women so that we can discern, scrutinize what's right from what's wrong by comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. Thank God Jesus said, my sheep shall hear and know my voice. What is he saying? He's saying we will know him. We won't hear him from the sound of his voice. We'll know that we know that we know that we know. What causes that knowledge? What's the only thing that gives us that kind of confidence? The word. The word. Now, I'm not saying anything to make somebody scared. Because I, I, I got to tell you, the more of the word you learn, the less you are, are afraid of or are concerned about being led astray. Being led astray doesn't even enter my realm of thinking except when I see it with other people. For two reasons. Number one, I know the word. Number two, I'm slow. Now, by that, I mean I'm not impulsive. Boy, that was a hard lesson to learn. You know how I learned that one? Made a lot of wrong choices. Not anymore. 
If the Holy Ghost is speaking to me today, that what he said to me today is still going to be true tomorrow. I don't have to run. Matter of fact, I want to make sure I don't run so that I can get behind him and follow. Hard to follow when you're out front. What are you supposed to do? Turn around saying, this way? Where? Where are you going? No, you let him stay out front. He leaves an easy trail to follow. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. You know, it seems to me that some people in ministry take a different approach that Paul did. Paul said we are more than conquerors. He said of himself, I am more than a conqueror through him that loved me. I hear a lot of people talking about being more than conquerors, but they don't talk about Jesus being the source of it. I hear a lot of people saying differently than what John did. John said, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I hear a lot of people talking about how great they are. Folks, that doesn't testify of Jesus. I love what John the Baptist said when Jesus' ministry began. He said, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. You take that attitude, the Holy Ghost is easy to follow. Well, we've gone long enough. We'll stop here and pick up next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's a safe guide. Thank you that by making the word a part of our spirits, we can be safe guides to help influence other people for good. Oh, Father, we thank you for the Holy Ghost. We thank you that he does show us things to come. He guides us into all truth. We thank you, Father, that the supernatural in these last days will become commonplace as we put your word first. We'll never put the things of the Spirit first. We'll always put the word first and the spirit second because the spirit always confirms the word. Father, I pray that you would make yourself real and known to these people like never before as they commit themselves to your word and commit their lives to live according to it. Thank you, Father, for being so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.